Have you ever done something that absolutely terrified you, but later found out it was absolutely amazing? That is my story about doing work on the mission field, humanitarian work around the world. That might surprise you. This is Cheryl Weber. This is the 100 Huntley Street podcast today. I am all alone with you, and we are diving into stories from the field. So I've been sent a list of questions, and today we just want to pull back the curtain a little bit about what it's like to do humanitarian and compassionate work around the world, um, some of the challenges, some of the joys, and definitely some funny stories I have to share with you. So get ready, uh, buckle yourself in, and we're going to tackle some questions in just a minute. All right, this is it. We are going to dive into some stories from behind the scenes. I have so many stories. I don't think we're going to get anywhere near touching even the surface of them. And I don't always get an opportunity to share some of the funny things that happen, some of the ways it impacts my own life and the experiences I've had, the joys of it. And I'm just so privileged. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoy this. My first question to me was, what's it like to experience the mission field in person, the highs and the lows? And I, I laugh about this because I think when I was growing up in my time, it seemed like everybody in the church was afraid that God would call them to go to Africa. And I don't know why, because the first time I went to Africa, it got into my blood. I just absolutely loved it. The, the music, the joy of the people, um, the sights and sounds, the red earth. I don't know. There's just something about Africa that's so beautiful. But my very first time ever really experiencing extreme poverty happened in Cuba, actually. I had gone there on vacation, and a lot of people in my human rights world were not impressed that you would go, that any Canadian would go there on vacation because um, of the human rights abuses that happened there. And so they don't want your tourist dollars to support the regime. So I found through my contacts somebody there who had a travel agency that was really just a cover to have people bring in all this extra aid and then he would get it out to places that tourists never went. So I gave him a call when I was there and connected with him, gave him, brought him some aid and he said, hey, do you want to see what the real Cuba's like? And so my friend and I who were there said, sure, yeah, of course. So um, this is my good friend Anthony now. He took us out for the day and he took us way beyond where the tourists go and he showed me the reality of what poverty looks like in Cuba and how people live and I uh, heard stories from meeting a woman who just had surgery um, for ovarian cancer without anesthetic and not only that but it got infected and she had to have that reopened another one or two times I believe it was with no anesthetic and the suffering in her eyes. And I think if there's one thing I would say about my first experience with poverty was the, the suffering eyes, like just see, looking into people's eyes and seeing just this world of suffering and, you know, the compassion of Christ in us, in me wanting to do something about it, not sure what I could do, but it was that, it was that same time in Cuba with my friend, Anthony, where we, we brought aid out really far away from where no one goes five hours from Veradero. And, um, we were going around visiting with this small church pastor, his congregation, and we got to this woman's house and she had had a stroke, so she couldn't walk. And there was, of course, no wheelchair. She was bedridden and, um, she couldn't read anymore, you know, because she's a little bit older and her reading had gone. There's no glasses. And we had, I had brought a ton of glasses with us. And so we took turns trying each glasses on and then she would open her Bible and try to see. And it was like, no, that doesn't work. 
no, that doesn't work. And we're just like hoping and praying that something works. And finally, this older lady puts on this pair of glasses that works and she starts weeping because for the first time in years, she can read the Bible. And that just meant the world to her. Her family didn't share her faith and they would steal the aid that the pastor brought to her. Her life was pretty miserable, bedridden, but now she had the comfort of the Bible. And I have never forgotten the power of that moment. It still brings tears to my eyes. Um, just absolutely amazing. And then, you know, some of the hard things about um, spending time in the mission field was going to Cambodia. And I have a huge heart for trafficking. A little later, I'm hoping to share a little bit of my story of how I actually went to Cambodia, which is a crazy God story. But I remember being in Cambodia and we were in this village where little kids were sold to pedophiles. And that was, that was hard and everything was hard. We were interviewing little kids that were rescued from the sex trade who were, you know, trafficked at six or seven, sometimes by their own family. And we'd come home at night and my cameraman who had a young daughter was like, why are you not crying? Like what, Cheryl, what is wrong with you? And the thing is, when I do this work, I know that I don't have the luxury of going there. If I can put it like that, it's like, I have to think about what the next question is. I have to think about what the next shot is. Like my job is to tell these stories well so that we can get help for these people who are being abused. And I don't have the luxury of indulging in my own emotions, but sometimes it's really hard. And he was just like, I'm going home every night crying because I have a little girl and this is just hitting too close to home. But on this day, this is the day I finally lost it. We, we were there um, and they had this kind of a Sunday school kids program with little kids. And um, these kids were kids that were abused. So, so our partner on the ground there was pointing out these pretty little girls, you know, eight years old and saying, that one is really popular with the pedophiles. And sorry, I know this, I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into this because I know it's disturbing, but um, he just told me some really hard things and, and which girls would be abused. And he told me that around dinner time, they would leave the kids club, they would put a little pretty dress, they'd get their makeup done, and then their parents or their pimp would take them somewhere to meet a pedophile. And it was that day, just knowing that this is the one time that, you know, I, I went there to try to save kids from being trafficked. And so meeting kids who had been trafficked, I knew that we were going to help heal them. And so there's hope in that. But on this day, to see those kids and know that they were going to be abused that night, and I had to sit by and let that happen, when I was there to make a difference, it slayed me. And, the, and you might be saying, why didn't you intervene? Well, the thing is, their own families were trafficking them. And so if I grabbed one of those kids and ran, I would be the trafficker. I'd be arrested. That child would still be trafficked and you would do no good. And what I learned from the people working in that village is that the process of transformation is a lifetime. It's, it's changing people's hearts so that they don't sell their kids anymore. It's giving them economic opportunity so they don't have to resort to trafficking. It's a complex and involved process and it's also helping people find Christ because he's the only thing that can change our hearts from being about greed or um, you know, being willing to prostitute our children so that we can survive or even they can survive. You know, It seems like the greater good, it's complicated. And that night we went out for dinner and I just lost it trying to talk about this because it, it just, it went against every fiber of my being. And I know so many of you are relating to what that moment would be like and how you would be feeling. I just wanted to, you know, go Rambo on them, grab an AK-47 and, you know, steal the children that were being abused. But the people who do this work, that's why they're my heroes. They've, they see that heartbreak every single day and they don't back down. So 
going right from there to the next question, which totally relates. How do you face knowing and wanting to help everyone but not being able to reach them all? I think this is the reason a lot of people who do this work can get burnt out. They can get cynical. They can get hardened. I remember interviewing um, an investigator for an organization that helped rescue trafficked kids. And he told me that it stopped breaking his heart after a time, that there was a hardness that came over him and having to go undercover into these situations. And he was happy when kids were rescued, but he didn't feel the same compassion that he did. And he was worried about himself because he knew he was in burnout. And it wasn't too long after that, that he actually um, left that organization and stopped that work. And I don't know where he actually ended up, but you have to care for your soul. (laughs) You know, I think um, I work mainly with men in the field. And so definitely there's that feeling of like, I got to keep up and um, I got to be tough. And, you know, I think God's given me a lot of resilience to do this work because I have been able to do it. But I've noticed over time that there needs to be some soul care. And I think that there's no shame in admitting that, that the trauma that you see and experience, the stories that you hear, it does begin to eat away at your soul. And you have to make sure to process that. It's also really important not to have a savior complex. Like, I think that's been the problem with humanitarian work over the years. And so just, I'm not the savior. I'm not the answer but I am here to help and I can only do what God puts in our hands. So the donations we receive, we can only do with what we have and we can only reach the people that, that, you know, those donations help us to get to. And so sometimes it's hard, really hard to be honest, to accept those limitations. But I also pray. I think prayer is a great outlet and realizing that you're not the only person with the answer, that God cares about those people that are suffering way more than you do, and that you can trust his heart, that he's going to answer their prayer. And you shouldn't walk away and forget them anyway. You should be praying for their total life transformation. One of the things that I learned the hard way when I started doing this work is that everyone desires empowerment, or if not everyone, I would say the majority of people, because there's always going to be people who want to take advantage or work the system or, you know, because of whatever their life experiences, don't want to take advantage of opportunities. But the majority of people that I have met around the world um, find it really humiliating to have to be dependent on others for aid. Poverty is a hard taskmaster, not just for your body, but also for your soul. And most people want a better life for their kids than they ever had. Um, they want their kids to be healthy and they want, dads want to be successful dads. They want to be the the man that can care for their family. They don't want to be in the situation where they feel like a failure. Moms want to see their kids be healthy. They don't want to see their kids suffer. Most moms would do anything not to see their kids suffer. And I found that years ago, I was in uh, the desert of Northern Kenya with these people called the Turkana. And we were working on a project to drought proof them for life. And I remember asking them, um, you know, this project is going to take you from a culture of dependence because it was an area that always had drought. They were always starving. Every major aid agency had a warehouse there. I've really never seen anything quite like it of the suffering of this area and the starvation that was all around me. And so I said to them, you know, have you ever given any thought to the difference between dependence and being independent or being able to care for yourself? And to be honest, I was thinking, no, they, they probably haven't thought about this because they're in this daily fight for survival, just trying to find water, just trying to get a little bit of food, just trying not to die, you know, burying their dead. Like it was such a really heartbreaking place to go to, kind of like the end of the world, really. 
And I thought they're not going to have any time to think about these bigger philosophical ideas of life. Well, what ended up happening is that everybody said to me, like, I hate waiting in line for food. It's so humiliating. I don't ever want to be on TV again. I want to be able to care for my family. I want my kids to go to school. I want them to have health care. And I want to make enough money to help other people who are suffering. Wow, doesn't that just describe how you feel in your heart as a mom, as a dad, as a daughter, as a son, just as a human, that we want dignity and that we want care. And I, you know, when I, when I think about humanitarian work from a faith perspective, I feel like that that work encompasses more than just people's bodies. It's more than just, you know, being safe from trafficking. It's more than just even going to counseling after being exploited or having food and water. It's also about having dignity and, you know, God cares for all of us, spirit, soul, and body. And I think when we do this work, we have to think about, Spirit, soul, and body. How do we give people that dignity? How do we empower them to care for themselves? How do we get away from that savior mentality that makes us feel good, but makes them feel terrible? So those are just some of my thoughts, but definitely going back to that question about not knowing you can reach everybody. So many times I felt that pressure of life and death that I, you know, I have to be the producer, the spokesperson, and I have to do a good job or people will die. <laughs> it's, I know you shouldn't think like that. And that's maybe a little bit of that savior complex, but when people's lives are on the line and you're the one that is there doing the fundraising or the asking, definitely that pressure can be a lot. And I just have to ask God to help me bear that burden and do the best that I can and just leave the results up to God. So yeah, those are really, really hard things. Um, So much more. I'm going to skip over to this question, which is personal stories, because I have so many. But I did promise you my trafficking story. And I think this is an amazing example of how God works in our lives. And for some of you who are listening, who have had a desire to do something or felt a call in a specific direction and it hasn't happened yet or you don't know how to make it happen, I hope that this story will serve as an encouragement to you. It definitely has been an amazing encouragement to me to see how God brought that to happen. So sometime around 2004, I saw this Dateline NBC documentary called Kids for Sale. A lot of people saw it because it was super shocking and it was actually when we all watched uh, regular TV. (laughs) And It was about these little kids in Cambodia. Actually, it was that village I ended up in years later. It was this little village in Cambodia where kids were just sold on the street to pedophiles. And it was so disturbing. I just specifically remember these two little girls offering these white Western men, you know, code words for different kinds of sex. And it was just wrong on every single level. Um, I was so horrified by it that for literally weeks afterwards, every time it came to my mind, I was physically nauseous. Like I couldn't actually, um, I couldn't actually eat. I just, I felt sickened by what was happening. And I started praying for the girls that I saw in that video. Some of them um, were, you know, undercover investigators were filming them. I was hoping they'd be rescued. So I was praying that they would get rescued that they would be healed some way. Like, is it possible to heal a little kid that's been abused so many times? And that they would come to know God and that he would be their healer. So those are my three things, rescued, um, healed, and come to know God. So a few years later, and I, and I got involved in helping some organizations, volunteering my time and, you know, just giving into this area. And a number of years later, I was at a church and the pastor of that church had just been on 100 Huntley Street that day. 
and he'd asked me to come share at his church. And so I had said a few words. And then this couple behind me, when I got down from the stage, they said to me, oh, we don't know who you are because we're from the States, but we saw you on TV today with our pat with the pastor of this church. And we wondered if we, if we could pray with you. And I'm like, yes, you know, if you, if you ever spent any time in public ministry, you know that you need a lot of prayer covering and it's not always easy to find. So I was so thrilled. They prayed for me. I have no idea what they prayed for me, but the second they laid hands on me, this um, deep crying, weeping came over me. And I started just weeping from inside of my guts, if I could say it like that. And I was praying, God, please help me help little girls who are trafficked. Please open a door for me to do something. God, please let me help them. And it was like out of the blue. I wasn't thinking about it. It had been probably a year or two since I'd seen that video. I have no idea where that prayer came from, but it was something spiritual. And then then it was just over. And then I was fine again and thanked the couple and went on. And so over the years, I covered a lot of stories around um, Cambodia, and I'd met a good friend, Brian McConaughey, from Ratnak International. We'd done a bunch of stories on his ministry, really loved it. We made a great connection, and so he is like, Cheryl, we need to get you to Cambodia to tell these stories. Like, you're the only journalist I trust, because I know that you will do whatever you can to protect these girls and not exploit them, and that you'll listen to our boundaries and keep their location confidential, and, you know, all the things that you need to do when you're telling these stories, you can't re-exploit people for the sake of a great story. And I think as a journalist and a person of faith, that is our commitment. And whenever I'm working with vulnerable populations and stories, I really work hard to make sure that it's a healing experience for them as much as I can. And there's lots of ways to do that, including, you know, making sure that they know that they have the power in that situation, that they cannot they can not answer anything they don't want to answer. They can put whatever boundaries and I will listen to them. They are the one in the driver's seat because they've never had anyone listen to their boundaries. That's part of the whole victimhood of trafficking. So did a bunch of stories on him. And so on a number of occasions, he and I made a plan where we'd go to Cambodia. I would take my vacation time. I would produce a documentary on his work. Um, and I would, you know, do it all volunteer. And that was our plan. And every time we made a plan, it fell through for a different reason. The last time, even the board had approved the budget for us to do this work, and then it fell through. And my heart just kept breaking every time. You know, God, I really thought that you were going to do something for me, that you gave me this desire for to help traffic victims. Nothing is working. So finally, what ended up happening is um, I heard that we, you know, we had a director of missions that I made friends with here at Crossroads. Now it's called Crossroads Cares. And I just had this thought, like, I just need to go talk to him. So I said to him, hey, you know, I have this good friend, uh, has this ministry, Ratnak International. You know, he said that he would give us this amazing access to the stories of how God is healing these little girls who've been trafficked because he trusts us. And I just think you would like each other. I think you two would hit it off because I did. I thought they were both very much alike and little, you know, no surprise. They actually met. They hit it off. And our David Shelley, our director of Crossroads Care, said to me, you know what, I want to I support uh, their work. I want to partner with them. Let's do it. So what ended up happening is I ended up going to Cambodia as part of my job, not on my vacation. Um, we ended up doing all these stories that we aired on 100 Huntley Street. And we ended up raising something like $700,000 to help trafficking victims that we split between our two partner organizations working in Cambodia. 
And I realized all this time when God was closing the doors on my desire and I didn't understand it, it's because I had this small little vision that I was trying to make happen, something I would do in my spare time and do a documentary and everything. And God had this huge plan where he would air it across Canada on 100 Huntley Street and raise all this money and impact all these people. And it was just way bigger than I ever intended, but I had to wait for it. Can anybody out there say an amen? Do you relate to this waiting and this not understanding why things are unfolding the way they are and you question whether you've heard God or not? Well, that was the story of my time in trafficking. And of course, there's so much more than I can share here, but we're going to come back with some final thoughts and a final question. So I hope you've been enjoying these stories from the field. If you have, please hit us up on socials and let us know and we'll do it again because This is barely scratching the surface of all the incredible things that I've seen and heard that God has done through this work. Well, I hope you've been enjoying stories from the field. And I feel a little bad because I did promise you a funny story, and there are so many. But we only have time for a super short one. So I'm going to tell the story of my trip to India for three weeks. And I was just new. It was my second mission trip ever. Um, And I knew that you couldn't have raw vegetables or raw uh, fruits because it could be washed in water and that water, your system's not used to that bacteria and you can get sick. And I was determined to remember the rules and not to get food poisoning on my first day of a three-week trip, you know, what they call deli belly. So I was paranoid, I guess you could say, but super careful. And I remember there was a guy cooking eggs at the breakfast bar and I said to him, you know, or omelets actually, and I said, is there any way you can just cook the eggs? Now, I knew that in India, when people say yes, their head gesture is a little bit looks like no to our North American eyes. It's a little bit side to side. But my tired, jet-legged brain, which has just flown for whatever it was, 36 hours, was not taking this in. So I asked him, you know, can you just make eggs with nothing in it? He says yes, but I think he's saying no. And I ask him again, he says yes, I think he's saying no. And I ask him a third time, now I'm getting a little annoyed. I haven't slept, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing some culture shock because I wasn't used to this kind of travel. And this man's giving me a hard time. And I'm like, you can't just do eggs. And he's like, yes. And I'm thinking, I think he says no. I said, fine. I said, Walk away. I'm getting other food and I'm frustrated. And, you know, what am I going to, what's safe to eat here? I'm trying to figure all this out. And then I realize it slowly starts to dawn on me. He was saying yes the whole time. And I was acting like a crazy person and I was getting more frustrated, but he was being accommodating. And I'm like, oh, the, like the, it's just like one of those top cultural faux pas that I had committed and I just felt terrible. And I look over back at him and there he is frying up my two eggs, just like he said he could. And so a little bit later, I gather my courage and I take the eggs and I just thank him and I skulk away embarrassed. So that's, that's one of my many stories from around the world uh, or I, you know, you've done something that's embarrassing or something really funny happens. And there's so many of them, you know, as you try to create understanding, learn about other cultures, they learn about you. I've had people laugh at me so many different times, but it's been joyful. It's a moment of shared understanding. So many of the times, as long as you're, you do things in love and you're respectful all the time. Well, the question that is given to me to answer my last question today is the biggest lesson I have learned about God while supporting this work. And that's a really big question. I have learned so many things. I could write a book, but I think one of the things I've really learned is the simplicity of the gospel. I remember many years ago interviewing, um, or actually having my intern interview this little boy who dug all these wells in Africa from the time he was eight. He might have been about 12 at that point. And I said to her, ask him, 
you know, like if seeing the suffering of the world has impacted his view of God, pretty big question for a little kid. And, but he answered it in a way that has stayed with me to this day for decades. And I said, you know, so she asked him, do you ever get angry at God? Has it affected your view of him? And he said, no, I would never get angry at God. He said, that's why God's put us here because we are his hands and feet in the world. So if suffering is happening and it's not being solved, it's because we're not doing it. Oh, mic drop. That was a moment that I have thought about thousands of times, probably, as I've seen the suffering of the world. It's for us to do. It's for us to answer. And so the simplicity of just sacrificially responding to people's needs, you know, denying ourselves so that others can have, that's the root of the, it's the root of Christianity. It's the root of servant leadership. It's the root of caring. And I think that's this work. And I remember praying for a pastor in India who had had his church burned down because his neighbors were essentially persecuting him because he was a Christian. He wasn't fitting in with the majority. And he just felt really all alone and he was really struggling. And so we show up in the middle of nowhere, these Canadians. And I remember we gathered around him and we laid our hands on his shoulders and we just were praying for him, praying for his family, his protection, provision, everything that he needs and everything we could think of to pray. And I remember God whispering in my ear, you know, this is the gospel. This is it. Going to a small little village in the middle of nowhere, finding someone who feels all alone and just standing with them, praying for them. And I think, you know, when you see the suffering of the world, don't underestimate the power of God answering and hearing your prayers. I know sometimes it feels like he doesn't and that you're wasting your breath, but that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. And as a matter of fact, part of the trafficking story that I shared earlier that I forgot to add, which is perfect in this moment right now, is that when I did go to Cambodia and I did interview those little girls that were trafficked, a number of them were the little girls I'd seen on the Dateline NBC documentary. And I wasn't allowed to show that I recognized them, that would have humiliated them. But in my heart, I was reeling in shock, realizing that the little girls I had prayed for to be rescued, to be healed, and to know God were rescued were on a journey of healing and had come to know God. That's what I was talking to them about in that recovery program. And so I just was in awe that God would put me in front of answered prayer all the way around the world. And you know how long it took me to want to go there and it didn't happen. But when it finally did happen, it was those girls that time when they were rescued on a journey to healing, knowing God. And I can tell you without a doubt that he hears and answers our prayers. So whether you have resources to give or not, whether you can go or not, prayer is so powerful. So when you pray for people all around the world, pray for the people doing the work, pray for the resources to come in, pray for strategy, strategic partnerships, people to meet that can work together. I always think partnerships is a great use of resources. Pray for wisdom, empowerment, that we can process the trauma, that we can just bring so much healing and joy and mostly empowerment to people so that they can care for themselves and have that dignity and freedom to live a life free from oppression, suffering, and pain, at least as much as we can free anyone from those things, which of course are part of life. Knowing someone cares, knowing someone hears, that makes all the difference. So thanks for joining us so much today on Stories from the Field. Let's do it again. Have a great day. Thank you for your ongoing support of Crossroads, a supporter-funded nonprofit organization and member of the Canadian Centre of Christian Charities. Thanks to faithful people like you, we are able to continue producing 100 Huntley Street. You can write to Crossroads, P.O. Box 5100, 
Burlington, Ontario, L7R4M2, or visit crossroads.ca to learn more about our programs.